Singing Dutchman Productions. Hello and welcome to Doug's Front Porch, a podcast where I get to sit down with friends old and new and have honest conversations. Today I welcome Ann Wheeler to the front porch, a friend that I've known for quite a long time. Welcome, Ann. Hi. It's so good to have you here. Um, I called in Ann for a very special episode and I want to preface it this way. This year, 2022, has been the year of the Supreme Court here in the United States and also the year of everyone shouting from the rafters that we need more civics education in America. So I invited Ann, who has a, a strong background in all things legalese, and we'll talk about that here in a minute, uh, to to help us dispel some myths, to get the facts on how certain things work, particularly looking at the Supreme Court and hopefully giving us all a little bit of a stronger civics foundation or foundation in civics as we move forward. So, Anne, I know that this is a uh, this is a topic that you enjoy talking about, so I can't wait to uh, dig right in. But before we get to that, let's explain to the audience a little bit. Where did you grow up? Uh, and um, tell us about your journey to get to uh, a, a field in law, into the field of law. Okay. Uh, I grew up in Cincinnati, um, had really great history teachers in high school, but that is not what I thought I wanted to major in. I was going to be a physics major. That lasted for about three months and switched into history and um, took a class in constitutional law, an undergraduate class from Archibald Cox, who was the special prosecutor in Watergate, who was fired as part of the Saturday Night Massacre, um, and decided to go to law school and did. Um, after law school, my first job was to clerk for a Sixth Circuit judge. The circuit, federal circuit courts of appeals are one step below the Supreme Court. There are federal trial court judges, then there's an intermediate court of appeals and the high court. So the Sixth Circuit uh, covers Michigan, Ohio, Kentucky, and Tennessee. So I was living in Kentucky, but we would go up to Cincinnati whenever it was our turn to hear cases. So this, this leads to one of my first questions. You threw out a term that we hear a lot, and that's what does it mean to be a clerk? Like what is the job of a clerk? It is a research assistant. Uh, depending on what judge you're working for, uh, the different judges use their clerks in different ways, but they all use them to do research, uh, to make recommendations. Uh, Supreme Court clerks, which we'll, we can get to in a minute, have a, a different, have a whole different role that other clerks don't get. Um, but so we had our own library. I was in a town called Danville, Kentucky, and the federal building housed the judge, the judge's two law clerks, and the judge's secretary. That was it. We were the federal government. Well, there was a post office. But other than that, we were the federal government in town. Um, so I clerked there for a year, went to D.C., worked for a great big law firm. Um, and then after I married, we moved to Pennsylvania. We lived in Lancaster for a year, and I clerked at the other end of the scale for a uh, common pleas court, a Pennsylvania state court judge in Lancaster County. Um, and then I ended up taking a long hiatus uh, raising children and finally taught a lot of undergraduate law classes at Lock Haven University. Awesome. So you know what you're talking about. I want everyone to understand that. I just didn't pull Anne off the street somewhere and said, hey, come talk to us. All right. So you hit on some things already that I definitely want to talk about. We learn in school that we have the three branches of government, the executive, the legislature, and the judicial branch. So today we're focusing on the judicial branch. But when you look at like in the big scheme of things, the role of the judicial branch is, and let's, let's act like nobody knows anything. The role of the judicial branch is to do what? is to resolve disputes, really. Um, and that can be anything from you have a disagreement with the plumber who uh, fixed your toilet about how much you owe her or not, um, 
to um, do you have a constitutional right to exert a religious exemption to getting a COVID vaccine that's required of everybody else in your job? So it can be um, it, at all levels. Um, do you, and I guess with your background, would you say that the judicial branch, like if you had to rank the three, <laughs> like we can't, like the system, could the system work without the judicial branch? Well, you would have to be relying an awful lot on people's goodwill. Um, I would feel rather nervous about that. <laughs> and of course, if you got rid of the judicial branch altogether, there would also be no criminal law. Uh, murderers would not go to jail. Uh, thieves could keep stealing. So you already talked about one other thing I was going to ask, because we hear this a lot in the news. We, we hear about like the, the Eighth Circuit Court or, you know, and everyone I think everyone knows we have our county courts. We have district magistrates. We have a state Supreme Court. And then everybody knows the Supreme Court. But I was um, you already touched on what a what the district, uh, excuse me, what the um, circuit court was, what level that is. So I'm glad we at least checked that off. So people now know if you hear how many circuits are there in the United States? There are 13. Uh, 11 of them are numbered, the first, second, and so forth. Uh, the D.C. Circuit. And then there is a federal circuit court of appeals, which hears certain specialized cases. All right, let's turn to the big boy, the way the guy all the way at the top, the United States <laughs> Supreme Court. And I have this broken down into a couple things that we want to talk about. Let's start with the justices. And I don't mean the, the nine justices that we have today, but the role of a justice. So I guess my first question is, why is there nine? What where did that number come from? That comes from Congress. And that is something that has changed several times over the years. The Constitution just says there shall be one Supreme Court. And it refers to the role of the chief justice as the judge during um, an impeachment trial of the president. Um, other than that, establishing the lower federal courts at all, the district courts and the circuit courts of appeals is up to Congress and how big the Supreme Court is, is up to Congress. So if Congress passes and the president does not veto a bill tomorrow that says the Supreme Court shall have three justices or 15 justices, that's fine. Now, you would probably have to wait for the six of them to die to go to the three, but yeah. Because that, that's one thing I think here recently in the news, a lot of people have been talking about on different sides of the aisle. Oh, we need more justices or, you know, I know that there was a time in during Franklin Roosevelt's uh, administration where he was, you know, they, they threw out the term packing the court, trying to expand right. the Supreme Court, but he, he was unsuccessful in doing that. Um, just just out of curiosity, what's your what's your thought on that? When you hear somebody say we need to add more justices, that'll solve some of our problems. What what's your knee jerk reaction to that? Um. Well, my knee-jerk reaction has actually changed, so maybe it's not such a knee-jerk. Um, always in history, I thought Roosevelt was wrong. He was faced with a very conservative Supreme Court at a time of economic crisis, and they were, for a lot of reasons that have all been overturned now, striking down all kinds of worker protection laws, all kinds of laws intended to get the economy back on track. Um, and Roosevelt came out with the court packing plan, and I've always thought that was a bad idea. Um, it never came to, to fruition, but it didn't need to come to fruition because there's a famous case called the switch in time that saved nine. A justice changed his vote from what it had been pre in previous cases, and then Roosevelt ended up getting maybe five appointments and all to the court in his 12 plus years. Um, but I'm actually more interested, you could just increase the size of the court, but there's no guarantee that um, who would get to make those appointments. Part of the, um, from a liberal progressive perspective, part of the problem with the Supreme Court right now is who has gotten the appointments. Um, Jimmy Carter was a one-term president. He got no appointments. Uh, George W. Bush was one-term president. He got two. Donald Trump got three. Uh, so he got more in three years than um, 
then either George W. Bush or Obama got in eight years. One of the interesting proposals, I think, is to keep the court at nine, but go to an 18-year term where every two years the president would get to appoint a justice. And obviously, if somebody died or resigned, you'd have to do something. Um, but that would mean every president who served a full term would be guaranteed two appointments. Now, there are some constitutional issues with that because it's a lifetime appointment. But it's there's a good faith argument that you could make it a lifetime appointment to the federal judiciary. And after the justice serves his or her 18 years on the Supreme Court, if they still want to keep going, they can go to a, uh, to a court of appeals. In fact, Justice Breyer will probably hear some cases on the Court of Appeals. Justice Souter still does to retired Supreme Court justices. That was another point I wanted to bring up. So we know that these are a lifetime appointments. What, right. What do you what do you think about that? I mean, it's the only job in the government that is a lifetime appointment. Um, it is. Is this a good thing or a bad thing? <laughs> in theory, I think it's a good thing. You don't want people making decisions on constitutional issues based on the latest polling. Um, so I think the lifetime appointment or a fixed but long-term appointment like the 18-year uh, possibility is a good idea. Um, but I think some of the most interesting Supreme Court cases come when a justice feels compelled to vote differently than he or she would politically. Um, there was a case a few decades back now about the burning of the American flag in protest. Um, and Justice Stevens, who was usually a reliable liberal vote, was a World War II vet, and that was a bridge too far for him. And he said, no, the flag's different. That's not protected speech. But Justice Scalia, who at that time was usually the most or one of the two most conservative justices on the court, said, no, it's freedom of speech. I may be appalled by what you are saying, but I have to support your right to say it. And, you know, you want justices who are. Who are free to make those judgments, not worrying about how anybody's going to vote at the next election. Yeah. Um we know that the president gets to nominate a justice to and then the Senate has to approve them. And there's the hearings. Mm -hmm. We've all seen that recently because we've had had so many recent appointments to the right. Supreme Court. Um, but I mean, one thing I think people don't realize, could you explain what are the qualifications for someone to be nominated by the president? That they're a living, breathing person. <laughs> uh, there really are none. Um, all of the current justices, except Justice Kagan, were Court of Appeals judges before they came on. Um, Justice Kagan was not. She was the dean of Harvard Law School, and she was the solicitor general, which is the lawyer who represents the government before the Supreme Court. Um, but before that, you know, there used to be lots of uh, Supreme Court nominees who had not been uh, judges before. Uh, William Howard Taft had been the president before. Um, Harry Blackman had been the lawyer for the Mayo Clinic, the big hospital up in uh, Minnesota. So there, when people do the charts of who is qualified and how qualified they are, eh, it, oh. so you I, could be nominated. I, I was going to say. Court. I was yes. going to say, my, my, dream, my yes. dream could still happen, yeah, that I could wear the black robe one day. <laughs> yeah, every time they announce a nomination, darn, not uh, this time. Not this time. All right, so we talked a little bit about the justices. Uh, let's move on to cases. So here's my first question. How does a case get it get to the Supreme Court? Um. Okay, well, there. I'm going to talk about the biggest category. There are a small number of cases that have to go to the Supreme Court. Like if um, Georgia sues Alabama over water rights, one state sues another. That is heard in the first place by the Supreme Court, although they actually appoint somebody called a special master to have the hearings. But most cases get to the Supreme Court um, 
on something called certiorari, which is a fancy law Latin word for, hey, send us the record. We want to see what happened below. So many, many people would like to have their cases heard by the Supreme Court. Um, if you lose a case in the federal trial court, you can appeal uh, as of right to the uh, automatically can appeal as long as you can afford to keep paying your lawyer um, to the circuit courts of appeals. But the Supreme Court gets to pick and choose. And they used to hear maybe 140 cases a year. Now they're down to hearing well under 100. It was 60 something this past year that they heard on the merits. Um, so you send in a petition for certiorari. Law clerks read those. That's one of the things that the Supreme Court law clerks who are recent graduates of law school usually do that um, other clerks don't do. They read all those cert petitions. Most of the nine justices, I think it's currently seven of them, but I don't know what Justice Jackson will do, participate in what's called the cert pool. So instead of every but each justice having one of his or her clerks read all the petitions, they pool the work. But a couple justices still want somebody in their chambers to see everything. Most of them, of course, get tossed and then, no, we're not here in this pile. But ones that somebody is interested in go before the justices at one of their conferences, and they'll typically talk about them a few times. If four justices vote to hear a case, which is one less than a majority to win a case, uh, then they will hear it. And that is usually referred to as granting cert, which is just, again, Latin for we agree to hear the case. So, you know, the 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 the, the um the cases that that came out and the the verdicts that came out just recently this year imagine the one that overturned Roe v Wade for example yeah. that means at some point those justices that case was in that pool and That's and, right. and four of those justices said we want to hear this case and, mm -hmm. and and that was all it took yes and actually with that case in particular originally they only asked to have it heard on they, they, they were not asking to have Roe overturned. They were just asking to have that specific restriction upheld. But they changed what the question was after cert was granted. Okay, so a case is chosen and it's time mm -hmm. to go to court. How does that work? Just like a normal court, you have your defense and your prosecution and they come in? Or how's that uh, work? No, what happens is uh, you're given a date. Uh, your case will be heard. They sit. They hear cases between October and April. So suppose you're given a date in November. Uh, each side writes what are kind of ironically called briefs because a brief doesn't have to be short at all. A brief is a formal legal argument with all kinds of footnotes and citations to past cases uh, and to statutes and so forth explaining why you believe your argument is right. Um, so each side will submit their briefs. They each get a chance to reply in writing to the other's briefs. Um, sometimes outside interested parties um, will submit what are called amicus briefs. Um, amicus is Latin for friend. It's a friend of the court brief. Hey, we want to give you a little friendly advice. Um, so the court has all that written record before them plus the transcript of the trial below if there was one. Um, so comes the day for oral argument. Um, you come in, um, nine justices sitting in a row on a bench in front of you. Um, you stand up and you say, Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the court, you give your argument. Um, they now give you like a minute and a half when you can make your argument without being interrupted. And from then on, any of the nine of them along the bench can pop up and ask you a question anytime. So you can't go, you've got half an hour typically to make your argument. You can't go in with a memorized half an hour of what you wanna say, because if a justice asks you a question, you don't wanna say, Oh, I'll get to that in a minute, Justice Kagan. You want to have an answer for her right there. And then there may be a back and forth, um, uh, a colloquy. So both sides make their arguments. The justices ask the questions they want. 
and then the case is submitted. At that point, the nine justices and nobody else go into a room. Nobody else comes into that room. I mean, I suppose if somebody had a heart attack, they'd let the EMTs in. But short of that, nobody else goes in the room. If anybody needs to make contact with an emergency message or lunch, the junior justice has to go to the, the justice who's been on the court the least amount of time has to go open the door. Poor Justice Breyer had to do that for 11 years because there was a long time when nobody stepped down. Um, in that conference, they go around the table and each justice indicates how he or she is leaning and then they take a straw vote. Um, and based on that, they assign somebody to draft an opinion. So if the chief justice is in the majority, um, he will pick who he wants to write to draft the opinion. Um, and they try to spread that out fairly evenly. They typically hear eight or nine cases over a two week period and they try to give everybody one. Um, and if the chief justice is not in the majority, then the most senior justice who is in the majority picks who gets to draft the opinion. So they go off to their chambers, somebody writes a draft majority opinion and the other judges read it and they can say, yeah, I agree, sign me on. Or somebody can say, I would agree if you would take out this paragraph. Um, and sometimes who has the majority will change. Sometimes another justice will write a dissent uh, saying, I disagree with the result in this case. I think the majority is wrong. And that will be so persuasive, one or two people will switch their votes and it's not the way it went in the original straw poll. Um, but so, do, do you think that, does that tend to happen? Or is that uh, more rare? It happens sometimes. Um, for example, in the big case um, several years ago now about whether Obamacare, the Affordable Care Act, was constitutional. It was ruled constitutional, but it was a two-part decision. Five to four, the court said that Congress did not have the power under the Commerce Clause of the Constitution to enact that law. I think that was dead wrong, but I'm not on the court and I didn't get to vote. Um, but five four, the same group of nine people said, but Congress did have the power to do it under a different power, the taxing power. The only justice who agreed with all of that was the chief, Chief Justice Roberts. And it has been widely reported that he changed his vote, that he was going to vote to strike down Obamacare and was persuaded by the facts, the law, the quality of it, um, not to. So yeah, people change their minds. Um, there was, as I think many of your listeners will know, when the Dobbs case, the recent abortion decision was heard, there was a leak. Uh, leaks are really unusual. Um, law clerks know that their future careers, which look pretty rosy, will be dead if they are known as a leaker from the Supreme Court. Uh, justices usually don't leak. Um, it's not that nobody ever leaks, uh, but the leaks are rare. And I don't think there's ever been a case where the actual draft opinion was leaked before. We don't know who leaked it. We don't know if it was leaked by a conservator or for a liberal. I can make arguments for both sides. But it is possible that the leaker was trying to either shore up votes or trying to persuade someone to make a switch. So when they have that initial straw poll, I mean, for all intents and purposes, they they know at that point how the, what the decision is going to be I mean, yeah, for the most. They part. know. So, yeah, a case may be argued in November. The justices have taken the vote. They know it came out six, three, one way. They've assigned the opinions, and it may be June before we hear about it. Um, so the justices know, the clerks know, but nobody else does. But, you know, a few people in the printing office. 
So uh, another question from someone that doesn't know, can a Supreme Court decision be overturned? And if so, how does that happen? A Supreme Court decision can be overturned one of two ways, by the Supreme Court doing what is called overruling a decision. That's what just happened with Roe in, in 1973 or four, I always forget. Oh, you know, the court ruled that there was a constitutional right to choose an abortion before viability. Uh, they reaffirmed that in 1992. And now this year they said, no, there isn't. We were wrong all along. Uh, that is called overruling a case. Um, so that's one way. The other way that a Supreme Court, well, well uh, three ways, really. Um, if it's a constitutional decision, the only other way it can be changed is by constitutional amendment. Um, when the Supreme Court held in the 1850s that a slave was not a citizen, uh, there has never been a Supreme Court case saying, of course they are. What we have is the 13th, 14th, is the 14th Amendment to the United States that says you're a citizen if you're born here. So that's the way you over, that someone outside the Supreme Court overturns a constitutional decision. Um, a lot of the Supreme Court's work, though, is not interpreting the Constitution. A lot of it's interpreting federal statutes. So if the court is interpreting an ambiguous federal statute and they say, we don't think Congress meant to do it this way, we think Congress meant plan B here. And Congress says, oh no, we really meant A. All Congress has to do is pass a law and say very clearly, we mean A, and then that's taken care of. Okay, okay. Just so we were all clear on that. You touched on this already, but I wanna ask you, um, what role does or should popular opinion play in the, you know with the supreme court that's one thing a lot of people have been arguing right now with with the recent cases that you know we had two verdicts come out that were the opposite of what the what a majority of americans agree with and then there are people that are arguing well this isn't democracy you know the, the voice of the people isn't being heard so can you talk about that a little bit yeah and i think it depends very much what kind of case we're talking about. You do not want, um, if we're deciding what is cruel and unusual punishment, you don't wanna to toss that out to a vote of you know, the general public because people who are angry about something would like blood. Um, you, um, if you're talking about something like the rights of a, um, well, uh, there was a famous two cases, because this is one of the times when the Supreme Court overturned itself. Uh, Jehovah's Witness school children in the 1930s and 1940s were getting expelled from school because they refused to say the Pledge of Allegiance, because the Jehovah's Witnesses think that pledging allegiance to the flag is idolatry. Um, and that's, you know, strong, well-established religious belief not a very popular religious belief. If you put it to a majority vote, should the JWs be able to opt out, probably even now you wouldn't get a majority supporting them. Um, so there are some things, uh, there's a very famous Supreme Court footnote that says, basically in a lot of cases where what we're talking about is say regulation of the economy, as long as the legislature has made a rational decision, doesn't have to be something we agree with, but something that you can, you know, recite the law and its reason without bursting into giggles, um, that will stand. But we're going to take a harder look at it if it involves a like something in the Bill of Rights freedom of speech, freedom of religion, all the rights of criminal defendants. Um, or the rights of what they call discrete and insular minorities. So think a racial or ethnic group, uh, think um, maybe homosexuals, think, um, uh, also think in that category of 
things that need a harder look, anything that impacts voting rights, because if if people don't like a law, you say, well, don't reelect those people who pass the law. But if your vote's not going to be able to do that, then you need a closer look. So I think you very much don't want the court to be looking at popular opinion when they're talking about protection of the right to vote, protection of constitutional rights, protections of minority groups. Um, Basically, you're talking about places where um, majority rule might not be the best thing because majority rule, you know, is not going to support um, letting, um, let's take a case that almost everybody thinks is obnoxious. There was a um, particular church out of Texas that used to go protest at soldiers' funerals um, saying that um, God was letting soldiers die because America supported homosexuality. The the Westboro Baptist, I think you're referring to. Yeah, yeah, Uh yeah. Um, I detest what they say. Almost everybody detests what they say, but they weren't actually showing up, you know, jumping up in the funeral, in which case, of course, you can kick them up. They're protesting like a quarter of a mile away from the funeral, at least in the case that went before the court. Um, I wish they wouldn't do it. But if you don't allow them to do that, how do you protect other people's right to say unpopular things? Unpopular things which, you know, may turn out to be right. Um, So you want to give maximum support to freedom of speech. Um, And that's not always going to be popular. Right. Yeah, it, it, it's such a fine, fine line, I think, sometimes when we start thinking about that, because you can be really pro one thing and totally anti another. And then you find out, well, if you, you know, that other might benefit you at some point or, you know, down the road, it, it's it's difficult. Um, but there's yeah. another thing I was thinking of that get, that comes up in the news a lot here recently is this idea that the court or members of the court um uh, sometimes we'll say that they're interpreting the Constitution in, in cases that are, you know, involving the Constitution, that they're interpreting the Constitution the way the founding fathers meant it to be. Can, when you hear people say that, and, and this is where, I mean, look, I, I'm I'm a proud American. I think, you know, our founding fathers did a lot of great things. They had their faults. Every human does. There are, I mean, they had a lot of faults. Um, but I have a hard time wrapping my head around thinking that we, in 2022, have any idea, nor should we, as to what James Madison really was thinking when he wrote this, or what Thomas right. Jefferson was really thinking when he wrote this. So when you hear people talk about that, how how can you engage in a conversation with someone in regards to that? Um, yeah, it brings up a number of interesting questions. Um, I was smiling when you said that because there was a famous interruption in a court case not too long ago, where Justice Alito, I don't usually think of as having a great sense of humor, interrupted to rephrase something and said, he wants to know what Justice Madison thought about video games. Do you know? Uh, No, no, we don't know. Um, Okay, so we need some background for this. Um, Originalism and its cousin textualism are about looking at the words of the text and often the phrase that's used is the original public meaning. Um, Well, the thing is there are a lot of, even if you agree you wanna be an originalist. And I think even Justice Jackson kind of agreed to that in her hearings. Um, That can mean an awful lot of things. How much leeway do you have when we say, look back to the Eighth Amendment again, cruel and unusual punishment. Okay, so if they would have considered drawing and quartering to be cruel and unusual punishment, we clearly can't do that. But do we only exclude punishments that um, people in the uh, 18th century would have excluded? Or do we say, no, anything that has become 
rare and is considered to be cruel under modern standards. You know, do we use evolving standards of decency, which is the a phrase the court has used, or are we stuck with what people thought in either 1789 or 1868? Uh, 1868 being when the 14th Amendment was ratified, because the 14th Amendment, one of the three post-Civil War amendments, changed really fundamentally restructured the United States government. Um, for one thing, the Bill of Rights only used to protect you against the federal government, not against the state governments. Um, and it wasn't really until the 20th century that it became clear that the court was going to interpret the 14th that way. But an awful lot has changed. Um, you will see... Um, you can look at two cases that came out the end of this term, the Dobbs decision on abortion and the New York rifle case on uh, gun ownership. And in both of them, there are dueling histories. Um, there are justices based on their research, their clerk's research and the research of the people who wrote all of these briefs. Uh, explaining, trying to explain what the history was. Um, how did people in 1789 think about abortion before quickening? And what was um, you know, what was thought about uh, gun ownership? And the justices are trained lawyers. They're not historians. And as you very well know, historians don't agree with each other. I, sure, they agree with a basic set of, yes, this happened and that happened. But, you know, that's why there was so much uh, disagreement and hands throwing up in the air about the 1619 project. It's one interpretation. The question is, where do you want to put the emphasis when you tell the story? So I find it interesting that the same justices who are very reluctant, some of the um, conservative justices are very reluctant to look at legislative history because they say, well, everybody who voted for this legislation may have voted for it for their own set of reasons. Uh, we're going to just look at the text of the law. And yet they're trying to figure out um, what people thought about abortion in uh you know 1789 and there's some shaky history in some of those opinions and certainly dueling narratives of history between the two opinions so yeah I, it, it's 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 great well we i mean we, we we deal with the same way in the legislative branch as members of congress try to draft laws and their interpretation of what the founding fathers thought Mm -hmm. I, I, it's such a yeah. it's such a funny thing for us as Americans. I think we has we have this long history and that a history that you know for the most part we're we're pretty proud of that we were one of the longest standing democracies in the history of the world or modern world, and yet we are tr constantly trying to like put ourselves in the shoes of of people you know that lived three hundred years ago, and I I find that interesting i think uh that we that we constantly have this 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 discussion never stops um you know what did james madison think what did mm -hmm. thomas jefferson think and, and you know it's a totally different world i mean totally different world that they lived in than what we live in yeah. one of the other things i always think is interesting when you hear the court talk about what rights are protected is it depends on how broadly how you define the right uh take the case about same-sex marriage um if you ask yourself in 1789 or 1868, um, did the ratifiers of the 14th Amendment, the ratifiers of the Constitution think two men or two women could get married? The answer is no. But if you ask yourself, did those same people and the Constitution that they ratified think that there was a zone of privacy uh, about intimate decisions about marriage and how to raise children and that sort of thing uh, that the government had no business messing with. If you define the right more broadly like that, that's uh, where you find um, the right to same-sex marriage. So it's 
always a matter of how are you going to ask the question? And that may determine how you answer the question. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, you know, right now, I think a lot of people are angry with the Supreme Court. And I've seen poll numbers where, you know, they've a, a majority of Americans have lost faith in the system. What do you say to that? I mean, do you, are you worried about the future of the court and its viability or its its legitimacy? I am worried. Um However, there have been times in the past when there's been good reason to worry about it, and we have come through those. Um, um, one thing that I, well, there are a couple things going on. One is there was a fairly narrow window, but it's the window in which, you know, my whole legal world exists from like 1935 until recently when the Supreme Court was a big upholder of rights. And there's a different balance on the court now. And we may have to uphold rights more in the legislature and less in the court. Um, and the other thing is that I think that um, the rise of the Federalist Society, which was founded the spring before I started law school and used to be some conservative law professors and conservative law students, and has become the vetter for Republican justices, um, has taken some of the... There used to be some unpredictability in how a justice would act once on the court. That's why the biography of Harry Blackman is called Becoming Justice Blackman, because how he voted in his latter years on the court didn't have much to do with how he voted the first couple of years when he was getting his feet on the ground. Um, you know, Earl Warren and uh, Justice Brennan, two famous liberals, were appointed by Dwight Eisenhower. Um, and now you've got uh, at least the nominees of Republican presidents all basically agreeing to an originalist and or textualist approach and being you know, vetted within an inch of their lives to make sure we've got one who's gonna. Now that doesn't mean that things are will always be predictable. Um, Justice Gorsuch, for example, dissented alone with Justice Sotomayor about something, the most liberal and one of the more conservative justices, because Justice Gorsuch feels strongly about some of the protections for criminal defendants. He thinks that is very much an originalist uh, thing that James Madison might in fact agree with. Um, but yeah, I worry about um, the way the choosing of justices has been politicized. I see that as being more on one side than the other, but I too have my my own blinders, so someone could disagree with me on that. Yeah, but, I think that's yeah. one of the things I think is becoming ugly to a certain extent. From I think no matter which side of the aisle you sit on, I think that should be a, a, a cause for alarm when we're seeing um, nominees that are lean more extreme than than moderate uh and you know and that again talks about i you know americans even though we think we're really really you know left or right blue or red i mean the majority of americans are still moderate either moderate democrats or moderate republicans but we're seeing this this politicization and this polarization that in my mind now is completely seeped into the Supreme Court. I mean, we've been lucky enough or unlucky enough uh, that in recent years, we've seen a, a slatter, a, a smattering of new justices come onto the court. Like you said, what they went 14 years without a new justice or something like that in the past, you know, and, and so and and for us here in the last couple of years to see so many justices, four new justices. Yeah, right. I mean, and but, that's go ahead. I'm sorry. And Oh, I was just going to say, I, I would have to look up the numbers, but when Ruth Bader Ginsburg was confirmed to the court back in the Clinton administration, I believe she was confirmed by over 90 votes. Um, and so it used to be the assumption was if there wasn't something wrong, if we don't find 
some scandal in this person's past or some unacceptably extreme view on something, we will vote yes, because elections have consequences and the choosing of Supreme Court justices is entrusted by the Constitution to the president. Um, and now it has become more tribal. Um, George W. Bush got two appointments uh, when he was president. One was Chief Justice Roberts and the other was Alito. Um, as an outsider who didn't get a vote in, in the Senate and um, I looked at it and said, Justice Roberts, I would vote for. Um, I would never have picked him, but he's got a solid background. He seems to be a, you know, thoughtful uh, person, got a good judicial record. I don't agree with them on a lot of things, but I would vote for him because Bush won more or less. Um, and, but I looked at Justice Alito and I, I don't remember specifically what it was at the time. It may actually have been his vote on the um, abortion case when he was still on the lower court. Um, I, I think there were several things and I thought, mm, I don't think I would vote for him. But you know, deciding who is middle of the road and who is extreme is again a matter of interpretation. Yeah, no, that's true. It, it yeah. would be nice to get back to the days when most justices are confirmed by, you know, 70 or more votes, but you've got to nominate people that 70 or more senators can can vote for in conscience. Yeah, my fear is that looking at it from, you know, recent history is that we've gone down some slippery slopes and some some roads that that have led or that are leading to setting up a foundation that is not as as stable as it was. I mean, we, a lot of people would raise their their eyebrow right away over whether you're a Republican or Democrat, you know, how um, uh, Merrick Garland's nomination, you know, how that all went down. I mean. And and I mean, we can sit here and argue that, well, they had the constitutional right to do what they did or they didn't. And but the fact of the matter is that those types of and I'll call it shenanigans because I think it was shenanigans. Those types of shenanigans were played out. And as a country, we it happened. So now there's been somewhat of a precedent set. And uh, that worries me a little bit moving forward, whether it's the Democrats doing it to the Republicans or the Republicans doing it to the Democrats. I that that worries me a little bit. Yeah, I look at what happened. Um, okay, Justice Scalia dies unexpectedly. Conservative icon. Obama has the appointment to make. He chooses Merrick Garland, who is a known quantity. By Democrats, at least, he would be considered a moderate. Um, and he was already 60-something. You know, he wasn't 45 years old um, because that's you know, the, the younger somebody is when they go on the court, of course, the longer they're likely to be there. And he didn't get so much as the courtesy of a hearing. Um, so then Justice Ginsburg dies closer to the election, a liberal icon, and the Republicans are able to push the nomination through. But, you know, I do hear people saying, see, the Republicans stole two seats from us. No, they it's one. <laughs> it's not. But, you know, it, it would have been an even trade if Scalia's replacement had been nominated by a Democrat and Ginsburg's by Republican, you would have had the same ideological balance as it is the GOP got both nominations. Well, we, we talked about how we're a little worried, uh, but let's 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 end on a positive note. What are some things that you think are still are still working and still that the court is doing right or that we as a country are, you know, we're we're, we're OK. We're not it's not all doom and gloom. <laughs> I'm hope I'm hoping we can come up with some <laughs> some positives here, too. <laughs> I hope so, too. Uh, <laughs> Um, well, I am not sure how much I believe it, except that Justice Kavanaugh is the, you know, the middle vote on the court right now. He is the median justice. He and, and the chief are in the middle more often than, or are in the majority more often than anybody else. And, 
you know, his separate opinion in the abortion case suggests this far and no further, we're not going to expand this broadly, unlike Justice Thomas's separate opinion. Um, I do think that there are institutionalists on the court. Um, the Chief Justice, uh, certainly Breyer was one, Kagan is one, who are very concerned about the reputation of the court um, and the acceptance of its decisions. Um, because, you know, if people don't accept the Supreme Court's decisions, then you've got problem. Uh, the other thing is um, that they will say, well, so at least some of them will say, hey, we are friends across the divide. You know, famously, uh, Justice Scalia and Justice Ginsburg loved to go to the opera together. There's even an opera written about Scalia and Ginsburg. Um, there are friendships. There are cases like the ones uh, where I talked about Gorsuch and Sotomayor dissenting together in a criminal justice case. And um, there, you know, we've been here before. I just uh, pulled this off my shelf. It's a, the battles and triumphs of FDR's great Supreme Court justices. It's called Scorpions because I forget who said it, but there's a famous quote that the just, uh, yeah, Alexander Bickle, law clerk to Justice Felix Frankfurter. The Supreme Court is nine scorpions in a bottle. Um, and that was said of the court in the early 1950s. So that was written a couple of years before Brown v. Board of Education um, outlawed legal segregation in the schools. Uh, a few years before the Warren Court uh, added a lot of protections to criminal procedure and so on and so forth. So it's not the only time in American history when voters, Congress, the court have been at each other's throats. And you know, we have blundered through before, and I Hope we will keep blundering through. But I, I like I like the term blundering because I think that's I think that is what I think that's how we function best sometimes <laughs> from the from the from that standpoint. Oh, thank. And this has been a wonderful conversation. I hope that uh, I know that you, you you provided some information that probably people have often wondered or thought about or never really knew what the right answer was or they they get an answer that they think from social media and that usually is not the right answer or like a factual answer. So I really appreciate you coming on and, and describing all of this and there's we could talk for another hour or two about individual cases and things that are you know interesting and what the court got wrong what they got right looking at it you know through the through the mm. lens of history that's the other thing like we're talking about and everybody's all fired up about these cases right now that are what you know affecting us living right now but it'll be interesting to see you know after we're gone and after those justices are gone how history looks back at this era and you know what yeah. happens you know what are the long-term lasting effects of some of these decisions that are being made right now and of course nobody knows you know but it'll be interesting to think how could they affect you know future courts future elections i think i really think that the midterm here in november is going to be this what the supreme court did this year is going to bring people to the polls whether they at least right now, a lot of people say they're going to come out and vote, but will you know, will they actually yeah. show up on on election day, all that stuff? But I think, I think the I think the court has at least fired up some of the political bases uh, to get out and vote or see. Look, your vote does work. You know, this is what happens when you vote, and or when you don't vote, this is what happens. So it'll be really interesting to see. And there's a big case before the Supreme Court, which I won't get into now, but involving something called the independent state legislature uh, doctrine, which is may very much affect how a federal elections run in the future. So there are all kinds of things to watch for. We didn't even talk about the establishment clause, which is being eaten alive. But I do try sometimes over the summer to write up summaries and reactions to some of the opinions. So when I get some done, I'll send them to you. I always enjoy reading them because it gives me a lens to look at, you know, whatever the topic is through somebody else's eyes and 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 someone outside the situation, too, but has yeah. a knowledge of what's going on. I always enjoy reading those. So yeah, don't stop sending those, please. <laughs> And I definitely, you know, well, I'd love to have you back on and we can talk about some of those other things, because one thing that uh, 
as a as a high school teacher, as a public educator, the one thing that we always hear a lot uh, in in the classroom and outside of the classroom is, well, individual rights, my freedoms, whether it's a student saying it's my freedom to do X, Y and Z, uh, or it's my right to be able to do this on school district property. And everybody has these their own interpretations of what what is their God-given right or what is their constitutional mm -hmm. right? And I think also often, I don't think you understand what that right actually. So I'd love to have you back on and we could talk about particularly freedom of speech. I think that's one right now that is, uh, you know, people say it's under fire and all these things. But I think uh, that would be a really great thing to talk about at some point. I'd love to have you back on. Yeah. We, yeah. Okay, perfect. But we, we close every episode out the same way, Anne, and that is with 10 quick questions. Uh, and this has nothing to do with the uh -oh. Supreme Court or anything. This is totally just about you so we get to know ann wheeler a little bit better okay here we go question number one what is your morning drink of choice tea tea hot tea or or iced hot tea, tea. Hot, hot tea, tea. okay never a coffee drinker ann mm, only if i'm freezing to death <laughs> and there's no tea or hot chocolate <laughs> okay sounds good uh number two who is a go-to musical artist or group for you oh i love chanticleer Men's oh, acapella group. Yeah, they're great. They are great. Mm -hmm. That's a great answer. All right. Number three. What movie can you watch over and over again and it doesn't get old? The American President. That is that's a great film. That is a yeah. great film. And since I'm gonna have you I'm gonna ask you a bonus question. Which movie do you think portrays the legal system the best? Oh, I got to think about that one. Okay. Okay. I you know like people I think knee jerk reaction might be like oh, a, a few good men or to kill a mockingbird <laughs> or you know these when yeah, they have these dramatic yeah. or my kids my cousin Vinny where you have these dramatic court scenes and battles between 12 angry men I think you know it's like there's you know, all these at least in the book, the objections and the rulings in To Kill a Mockingbird are better than a lot of them. You know, that, yeah. that, but yeah, I don't know. I tend to be ready to scream whenever I watch a courtroom scene in a movie. So Okay, okay, fair enough, fair enough. I had a I had a historian on the episode one time and I asked them what which which movie is the most historically accurate and all they could argue was about which movies are not historically accurate and why. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> all right, next question. Oh, this one will be good. What is the last thing that you read? Um which one did I shut? I am. I am blanking out on the title. Hang on. Give me a second. No, I just finished it yesterday. Um, it is called Lessons in Chemistry. Um, and it is. Have you read it yet? No, no, um, no. It's about uh, a woman in the 1950s who is a chemist. It's. It's a comedy, but it's, you know, it's also on how hard it was to be taken seriously as a chemist. And so it's a okay. good read. Sounds good. All right. What's your favorite pizza topping? Mm. Pepperoni, sausage, and green peppers. Sounds good. Laying on the beach or going for a hike? How about going for a hike and coming down to the beach afterwards? <laughs> there you go. Okay. Sounds good. Um, you have invited me over for dinner. What are you making? Is it 90 degrees or 40 degrees? <laughs> what, you make the call. Your call. Your call. Oh, um, pork roast, Kentucky corn pudding, rolls, and... I don't know, maybe a pie for dessert, but I'll have, I'll have something green in there too. Could you please send me the Kentucky corn pudding recipe? Because I've never heard of I that. I can do that. That's, oh, yeah. I, or right. you can come over and well, I'll Well, no, yeah, there we go. Perfect. <laughs> Sounds perfect. Okay. Um, you've traveled a lot. So this next question I'll be curious to see too. What is a dream vacation destination? Oh, uh, you know, I have been all over the U.S. and Canada, but I have never left North America. So, um, I mean, I want to go to England and Germany, but if, if the good fairy gave me a trip, I would take New Zealand and Australia. Uh, yeah, that would be great, wouldn't it? Oof. Yeah. I hope to make it to those two places some point in my life too. That'd be awesome. All right. What is something you're afraid of? Oh, lots of things. <laughs> Driving on busy interstates. Okay. I can't do it. Yeah. 
That's that's a great answer that I don't think anybody's ever given that answer. But I, how who doesn't get anxious in those situations? I just don't do it. Yeah, well, there you go. All right. Last question. What job other than one that you've had would you love to have? Supreme Court justice. <laughs> yeah, but you'd have to answer the door every time. And, you know, that. I know. <laughs> Sounds good. Well, Anne, thank you so much for giving us a civics lesson in the Supreme Court. Hopefully this uh, cleared some things up for people out there. Um, and uh, like I said, I want to have you back on and talk about some of these other things that we didn't even get to uh, in the time frame. But I'd love to do that because I'm sure as time marches on, I don't think the court is not going to be in the news. And I don't no, think, I don't think so. <laughs> I don't think some of these issues that we talked about today are going to be resolved either anytime soon. So I'll have you back on Anne for sure. But thanks so much for coming on the front porch. Thanks. Thank you for listening to Doug's Front Porch, a conversational podcast with your host, Doug Maidenford. If you enjoyed this episode, I'd love for you to subscribe, rate, and give a review on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts from. Five stars only, please. Follow along on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Just look for Doug's Front Porch. Also, please feel free to tell all of your friends about the show, and I'll see you all next time on My Front Porch. (music) 